We're at the point now where we're, we're having rivals. I think having a rival sharpens your attention. A, a lot of these anti-patent policies came from the 50s and 60s when we didn't really have any economic rivals. Suddenly when we had Japan and Germany eating our lunch, people said, wait a minute, we better wake up here. And I think we're in that same situation now. Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, the host of Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at the impact of intellectual property rights on people and business. Season three spotlights such topics as artificial intelligence, IP licensing, and TikTok as a learning tool. Enjoy the episode. University licensing as a result of public-private partnerships has become a huge business. The revenue is typically put to good use by universities, which deploy it to fund other research activities the government is ill-equipped to identify and manage. Our guests today know about partnerships. Joe Allen and Kathy Koo are two of the leaders in understanding and implementing successful public-private technology and science partnerships. Catherine Koo is Chief Licensing Advisor in the Palo Alto Office of Wilson Sonsini. She served as the Executive Director of Stanford University's Office of Technology Licensing for 27 years. During that period, the office licensed hundreds of new technologies, bringing in $1.8 billion, most of which went back to support research and education at Stanford. Ms. Koo also spearheaded the development of nine principles set forth in the public interest, nine points to consider in licensing university technology. More than 120 institutions have adopted the principles. Joe Allen is the executive director of the Baidol Coalition, a diverse group of innovation-oriented organizations and individuals committed to upholding the Baidol Act and informing policyholders of its benefits. Mr. Allen has been a leader in national efforts to foster public-private sector R&D partnerships and was the key congressional staffer securing the passage of the Baidol Act, which facilitates collaborations between research universities and U.S. industry. Thank you both for making the time to be with us today. Joe, you're in the D.C. area, I think. I'm in the Wheeling, West Virginia area, but I was born in D.C., that, that counts. And Kathy, are you in Palo Alto? Right now, yes. For our listeners, Joe, who may be unfamiliar, let's start with you. What is technology transfer and what role does the Baidol Act play in facilitating U.S. innovation? Well, basically, what technology transfer is, as far as I'm concerned, in, in, in this respect, I mean, there's other, other aspects of it. But what we're going to talk about today is the government funds a lot of research. And that goes back really to World War II. Uh, that we had a big change in policy after World War II. What do we do with all this R&D that we build up capacity in World War II? And the decision was to keep that going, which the government didn't really do before World War II. The idea was the government should be funding fundamental research to drive forward knowledge and also meet its mission needs, like the Department of Defense, people like NASA. But what we found was very quickly after World War II, with billions and billions of dollars being invested, uh, inevitably inventions were being made. And the policy in World War II was if the government funded any percentage of the research, an invention was taken away from the entity that created it, like Stanford University or our contractor, taken to Washington and made available freely for anybody that wanted it, which sounds very noble. But the problem is, unless a company is going to invest a lot of money and a lot of time and, and know from the start the odds of success are very small, that's going to remain a research paper, not a usable technology. So... Well, as you mentioned, I was on Senator Bayh's staff, and in the late 70s, it was very apparent that policy was not working. The U.S. is losing its technological lead. 
Uh, people like Japan were openly saying they were getting ideas about new inventions from our universities and our federal laboratories. Nothing illegal about that. We were giving it away. But we said, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, we can't keep funding this research, not getting an economic benefit. So what Bayh-Dole did was it, it injected the incentives of patent ownership, which are critical mm -hmm. to development, into the system. And we also decentralized technology management. Out of Washington, you didn't have to go on a case-by-case -case basis and beg Washington for your invention rights. We said automatically a university or a small company can own it. They can license it for commercialization, tech transfer. They have to give a preference for small companies and people that will make the product in the United States. And then we got the government out of the way. And a lot of that was really due to the work done at Stanford. Hey, Kathy, what did the Bayh-Dole Act mean to, to Stanford and to licensing from your perspective? It made all the difference in the world. I started at Stanford in, in November of 79, right before Bayh-Dole was passed. And we had a very little office. Um, and my job, my first job at Stanford was to help inventors disclose inventions to the university because then we would know that we would disclose them to the government and then try to take title. So at the time, my first meeting of the professional organization that existed at that time was called SUPA, Society for University Patent Administration Administrators. Um, there were about 70 people who were at that meeting, and that was considered big at the time. Now, uh, there are 1,500 to 2,000 people at a professional meeting. So for Stanford, we had these institutional um, patent agreements with the NIH and NSF, and we were allowed to take title. But for any other agency in the government, we would have to go ask, be able to handle their inventions. And so when Bayh-Dole passed, it opened the floodgates for us to be able to handle a lot of inventions. Stanford had always been a fairly entrepreneurial ecosystem. And there were many inventions that we were interested in keeping title to, but it was such a hassle, so we wouldn't usually go and get them. When we were able to take title, then we made decisions that were risky. These are things the government just isn't equipped to do. Right. And we wanted to get those technologies out there. Now, Baidol is not without controversy. You know, there are those who feel it's a big giveaway in the part of the government. And uh, I, I think I have a quote here from Admiral Rickover, a U.S. Navy director of nuclear propulsion, famously said or infamously said, government contractors should not be given title to inventions developed at government expense. These inventions are paid for by the public and therefore should be available for any citizen to use as he or she sees fit. <laughs> well, I remember Admiral Rickover very well because he testified at our hearing and he was, the, he was the father of the nuclear Navy. But there's a fallacy in what you just read. Mm -hmm. The government's not developing these technologies. That's the problem. These are not developed technologies. These are basically more like ideas than products. And we ran this, we, we've run this experiment. We did this for 40 years, from 19, well, not, 35 years, from 1945 till 1980. We had exactly that policy. There was not a single drug commercialized that NIH funded under that policy when the government took inventions away. And when we, when Senator By and Senator Dole got into this, we found there were 28,000 inventions sitting on the shelf benefiting no one uh, because they were not developed. And, and companies are not stupid. You have to put your own money into developing these and a company, and no one is going to do that if you can't have sufficient patent rights to protect your investment. If you're going to invest in this, and your rival can go back after you've shown how it works and get the same license from the government, who's going to do that? The other thing that Kathy mentioned was she talked about 
the institutional patent agreements that, that Stanford and other people were using before by Dole. The problem was Jimmy Carter, when he came in, had the same kind of philosophy as Admiral Rickover, and he ended that program. So one of the first things we did when, Senator, when I was on Senator Bystaff was we had a press conference and showed 50 potentially important inventions, cancer detection, burn treatments. They were just backing up at NIH now because, again, the government was going to take those away from the universities and try to make them freely available. And after 35 years, uh, it was very clear on a bipartisan basis. Senator Bai was a liberal Democrat. Bob Dole was a conservative Republican. Bidol passed in an election year, and elections then are no different than elections are now. However, even in the midst of an election year, conservatives and, and liberals agreed we can't throw away hundreds of billions of dollars of government-invested research and not right. get an economic return. But, this, this argument is still being made, but the fact is the government is not developing products. Kathy, what's your take on this? I mean, my simple statement is what's um, available to all is is not valued by anyone. Right. So it's just that, you know, we are a capitalistic society. Companies want to take risks. They're willing to take risks, develop new products, but they need to be able to get a return and have a limited term monopoly um, exclusivity. And so, you know, the patent system is a way to encourage development of very, very early stage inventions. These inve- all of these inventions are very, very early stage as Joe had mentioned, these are sort of just nascent ideas. How does the government know what to patent? You know, they're filing patents on some things, probably not filing patents on a lot of things they could, I would imagine. The government yeah, well, doesn't know necessarily. The, mm-hmm. And the tech transfer office uh, has a little bit more of a commercial sense of right. what might be commercializable because they're going to take the risk. They're going to spend money and they need to make some money off the licenses. If they don't choose wisely, they're going to be really in trouble, basically. And by government, we mean uh, Department of Defense, uh, NIH, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Now, now, it seems to me that NIH, Fensk Institute, Pasteur, Max Planck, all great organizations doing phenomenal, great things. They're just not equipped to commercialize or even understand what commercializing means. And that seems to be a lost opportunity there that tech transfer can help with. The NIH does have a system for tech transfer, but they are um, hampered by a lot of government rules that the universities aren't necessarily, they don't come under. Mm -hmm. We we should add that Bayh-Dole also applied to federal laboratories because before Bayh-Dole, federal laboratories had no more incentive to patent and license than the universities did. The royalties went to the Treasury Department. Wow. So Bidol also, NIH has a tech transfer office. I think they're pretty good at licensing. As Kathy said, it's a little bit more onerous there because you have to go through government processes. But the other thing I wanted to mention before we go on is, which we shouldn't pass over, our system is driven by small companies. 70% of university licenses go to small companies. 50% of our new drugs come from small companies. So without patent protection and without the incentives of Bidol, that's, that's not going to happen. As I mentioned before, by Dole, under Admiral Rickover's program and, and the program that the critics want to put back in there, not a single drug was commercialized when NIH took the inventions away. Mm-hmm. So it's night and day. Uh, before, by Dole, the U.S. was number three in life sciences. Now we're number one, and, and, and there's no, no one even close as number two. And it's interesting that Bayh-Dole coincides with the rise of Microsoft, 
software, Intel, uh, semiconductors, that 80s period. It's probably no coincidence that they uh, complemented each other. Kathy, at Stanford, there are quite a few interesting licensing successes. Uh, We spoke about some of them previously. One is Google, which is the the algorithm uh, for Google. Tell us a little bit about that. So Larry Page, Sergey Brin were students, graduate students at Stanford. Uh, They were doing research under government-funded projects, so Baidu came into play. They disclosed an invention that they said was this great uh, way of searching the web. Um, They thought it was wonderful. Uh, You know, we thought this is an area that's sort of interesting and is up and coming. But what we typically do and what all universities try to do is quote, market the invention and see who's out there and who might be interested in it. And so we marketed it to extensively, but no one was interested in it. There were other search engines that existed at the time. This is 1996 or so? Yeah. The yeah. public thought those ones were perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the creators, uh, Larry and, and Sergey, really just wanted the industry to recognize it. And, and I, I always say that if someone had come up and said, you know, we'll pay a million dollars, that's what they wanted for this technology, you know, we would have licensed it to this entity, but no one was interested. And so out in my view, out of frustration, these two kids started a company thinking, you know, they had the passion, they believed in their technology and they started Google. We gave them a license um, under Baidol. It was an exclusive license and we didn't even know how to price it. They made Google what it is today. I mean, this is our most famous licensee. But we were the seed that helped them start. They got investment that, money. They, they became that, Google. I believe 2005, Stanford sold its 1.8 million shares. I, I think that's probably three or $400 million. Why did they sell the shares? When they went public, right? Uh, be, because we have equity, we have you know potential insider trading issues, so uh-huh. we always sell our shares. Okay. So OTL took a little bit of equity. It was actually a two percent equity stake in the company when they started. We weren't diluted, and so when they went public, at a price that at the time ninety dollars I thought was outrageously high. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, made $330 million. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So does any percentage of that go back to government organizations? No, it doesn't. But, but the, it does help to fund research that public benefits from. Yes, the revenues have to go back to fund further research, the purposes of the university. Specifically other research, it, it can't go back to funding a stadium, a new stadium. Yeah, Generally, it's not. Okay, <laughs> So again, um, every university has its own what we call royalty sharing policy. Sure. And at Stanford, one third goes to the inventor, and Baidol requires us to give some of the royalties back to the inventors. And then one third goes to the department, the Department of whatever, computer science, Department of Mechanical Engineering, the Department of Immunology, and then the school, the School of Engineering or the School of Medicine. But every university has its own uh, so so with this track record, Joe, what, why are people still uncomfortable, if not angry, about Baidu? Well, the same people that opposed it in 1980 are opposing it now. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a semi-religious belief. Okay. Um, Baidu passed overwhelmingly, 96 to 4 in the Senate 
and it passed unanimously fine. But there actually were pockets of people, Admiral Rickover and, and Ralph Nader's public citizen, that wanted like the old policy. They didn't like patent rights. They thought this was unfair. And that, that still continues to say. Now, it's, it's not a widespread group, but they're very, very vocal. And they're, what they're trying to do is return us to the pre-Bidol world. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention real quick was you asked about, does the government get anything back? The original Bidol bill actually had a payback provision to the government if you had a, a significant success. The federal agencies came to us and asked us to take that out because they didn't want to have to worry about tracking these inventions. And they also said, listen, the public's benefit is having this research go back and this is funding discretionary research, which otherwise they would not be able to do. It's building research facilities, which otherwise would not exist. They said that's the public benefit. And don't forget, we're getting new products and jobs in the United States economy we'd not have otherwise. Sure. So the government sure. said that's our benefit. The other thing I just want to mention on Kathy's story was, and this is typical today, it's really hard to recognize a breakthrough when you have it. They couldn't find a single licensee for Google. University of California, Berkeley, took them 10 years to license immunotherapy. Same thing. Nobody was interested. They finally got a small company. So for 10 years, they were looking to license immunotherapy, which has revolutionized our cancer treatment. The woman who came up with mRNA, another 10 years, she was actually downgraded because she couldn't get research grants because no one believed in what she was doing. So to anybody that thinks like the, the, our opponents, the tech transfer is a cakewalk and you're being given something and it's unfair, they have no clue what the reality is. It, this is one of the hardest things you can possibly do. And the odds against success are daunting. For every Google, <laughs> there, are, there are a million others who do, don't make it out of there, who look equally promising, but for whatever reason, they just don't pan out. And the, the reality is that most universities don't make money on this. this the top this 10, Wharf and Columbia and NYU and Stanford do quite well, but a lot just sort of generate a few million dollars. Now, not everything is a license, as you point out, Kathy, uh, you know, with is a revenue stream. Sometimes it's an equity position. Yeah. What are some of those I mean, that you, you were involved in? Yeah. Well, the one that you, you, we had talked earlier about data visualization. That's also an interesting story. Our faculty and a student had developed this data visualization um, system. And they came to us, disclosed it to OTL, and we did a patentability assessment, just sort of a quick one, and decided that we didn't think we could file a patent on it. And so we told them. And so, again, they went away. A year later, the student came back and said, we really want to start a company around this technology. And can you find something to patent around this? And so we did. And we, we filed a patent. They started a company called Tableau. And it is now a very, very successful data visualization company. We, again, just basically took equity because we had already turned it away. You couldn't ask for a lot of money when we had, uh, sure. you know, not, not invested in it at first. And they made the company what it is today. And, again, that's an example of people not recognizing the value early on. Even our office didn't, didn't know. Now, Kathy, uh, patents and patent values, especially in the tech uh, sector, have been beaten down. You yeah. know, you have hurdles like the PTAB, Patent yeah. Trial and Appeal Board, and uh, the uh, American Events Act have diluted the value of some patents. So what does that mean or has that meant for tech transfer and licensing? So it's an interesting view of the world. Mm -hmm. Tech transfer sees industry as either... Large company, small company, 
physical sciences are life sciences. And University Tech Chancellor has generally been way more successful in the life sciences. The life sciences industry believes in patents. They understand the concept of risk. A lot of you know, technologies never make it to the marketplace. A lot of potential drugs don't make it to the marketplace. But they believe in the principle of patents. And so, again, very early stage technology, technologies and life sciences are much more easily licensed to a startup who then develops the technologies for, you know, four or five years, de-risks it a little bit, and then they partner with pharma. So that has been a very nice model in biotech and pharma. In the physical sciences, it's a lot harder. Um, typically, uh, big companies don't want to take licenses from universities. They tell me, Intel used to tell me, you know, hundreds of thousands of patents in a computer. They don't want the one patent from the university. So they're very much more resistant. But the small companies are interested in taking some of these technologies and developing them. And then often the large companies, we used to sort of kid, they always acquire these small companies. So again, <laughs> it costs the, them more in the long run. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, I feel like there's been um, uh, an increased sophistication by all sizes of companies on how to deal with you know, early stage technologies, go to smaller companies, and then the larger companies keep an eye on the smaller companies and they figure out some partnering deal. There seems to be some respect for patents in, the, in this community, uh, but the patent troll meme, has that hurt tech transfer? Universities are trying not to, to work with patent trolls per se, mm -hmm. because part of the mission of tech transfer is to get the technology developed. Right. It's not a, a money you know, focused process. The other thing we should mention is Bayh-Dole was for the first pro-patent bill passed by this Congress in decades. When I, when I first came on the Senate Judiciary Committee, patents fell under the antitrust and monopoly subcommittee. So you can imagine how they fared there. So we're sort of going back to that same era. But the problem was, the reason we came out of that era was it was killing our economy. And, you know, the patent, there, there are very, very few patent trolls. Mm -hmm. But a lot, a lot of the big companies didn't want to bother with these small companies. They said, we'll just, we'll just roll over them. And they, and they, they started this, this thing that was picked up was, Paying royalties to these people is just going to make products more expensive, so let's just roll over them. It's the same thing the automakers used to do to small companies, like the intermittent windshield wiper. Yes. You know, patents Robert, were just used Robert to Kearns, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, the problem now is, and this goes across all industries, because of some of the Supreme Court rulings, you can't get an injunction. So mm -hmm. if you're infringing on a small company's patent, which is all they've got, and, and, you're, and you're, you know, inf you're making sales, it used to be you can go to court and get an injunction. Now you can't. So the whole system, unfortunately, is now tilted against the very people driving our economy. And I think that's why Congress is now relooking at that. I think AIA was a real mistake. I think it's a shame that, you know, it, it wasn't uh, fine-tuned the way it should have been. Uh, I think it was it, it, people had the right idea. They were trying to make it so there's an alternative to risky litigation. What's happened is they've got a, what they've set up is another loop now that can right. beat you down before you go to litigation. And I've had I've talked to small companies they get a, get approached by a big companies say, listen, either you let us do this or you give us a, a minimal fee, or we're just going to keep putting you through the P-tab till we drain you dry. How long right. can you afford to do that? Which is the same thing the big three automakers said to the poor guy who had the intermittent windshield wiper. And luckily, he was stubborn enough, but it, it took him his whole life to actually win that battle. An entrepreneurial country that ignores its inventors uh, is living on thin ice. 
And I think, unfortunately, we need to relearn some of the lessons of the 70s and 80s. You know, what really made Bayh-Dole work was not just Bayh-Dole, but we had the Supreme Court rule in the Chakrabarty decision mm-hmm. that, in fact, genetically engineered molecules were actually patentable. Mm-hmm. And we also had, which I was also part of, we passed the Court of Appeals to the Federal Circuit, which actually standardized enforcement of patent rights. So that's fallen apart now. Yes. But those in combination, we are still living on the technology renaissance started by Bayh-Dole, Chakrabarty, and the Court of Appeals. But unfortunately, the parts are starting to come apart now because two of the three have really sort of fallen off the bandwagon. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court now has gotten into patents and they've really muddled up the whole area. So it's really yeah. a mess right now. I think it's, it's tech transfer has gotten more sophisticated, but because of, of the, the things that Joe was just talking about, the Supreme Court and, and PTAB, it's gotten much harder to affirm that a patent is strong. What about, so, Kathy, what about enforcing your patents as a university? Have you enforced patents as Stanford? And what are the challenges in doing that? You know, Stanford has enforced its patents. And um, I think most universities feel that they will probably have to do it on occasion. This is not what we're about, though. We're not right. about litigation. We want companies to develop the technology. But as Joe says, a lot of companies are just ignoring us. Uh, particularly big high-tech companies believe in this thing called efficient infringement right. and that they believe the universities won't go after them. Uh, there have been some very high-profile cases where the universities have won, but it takes years and years and so much money. I just feel like it's time wasted, money wasted. Patent litigation is unpleasant for, for everyone and expensive and there's a longer timeline and now the PTAP you know, makes it even more difficult. Uh, and longer. But if you don't have it, it's it's net negative for innovation. Inventions that are meaningful, that are being infringed, need to be recognized. You know, Kathy, you were author of a paper. I, I'm, let me see if I get the name right here. But it was effectively dealt with the nine principles. And you were co-author. It's been adopted by 120 uh, organizations. And you say a lot of interesting things in there about what tech transfer should be. You say beware of working with aggregators. The term patent troll, you know, is used in that paper. <laughs> what was your thinking there? So this was an interesting meeting that was spurred on by uh, another university's actions. Um, the University of Wisconsin had filed a bunch of stem cell patents. Right. And they wanted other universities to take a license to those patents in order to do research at the university. So we were very concerned at Stanford that if all the universities picked up this practice, all we would do is be licensing each other for research use. And, and that seemed not what tech transfer was all about. So we decided to convene a meeting of tech transfer directors, leaders, and their bosses, their dean of research. So this was the first and maybe the only meeting where the two levels from different universities were in the same room. And we talked about this, this Wisconsin situation, and we ended up talking about a lot of different issues that tech transfer faces. And the deans of research were able there to listen to this and opine also. So it was a wonderful, robust discussion. At the end of the day, we were all gonna go home and just had a nice meeting. David Korn, who was um, at the AAMC at the time, said, 
do something with this meeting, um, memorialize it in some document and memorialize what we talked about. And so we decided to put out this, this paper. We call it Nine Points to Consider in Licensing University Technology. It's sort of a pledge of allegiance. Nobody is enforcing it. Nobody is really you know, doing anything with it, except that we're going to say we're, we're really trying to do tech transfer in the public interest. And these principles reflect what we interpret public interest to be. So, for instance, the first principle is that we're not going to make each other take licenses to our own inventions. So that was the emphasis for the meeting. And then the second point is really important, and this goes to why we do licensing, especially exclusive licensing, which is that they should be structured in a manner that encourages technology development and use. Mm -hmm. And over the years, the universities have gotten very sophisticated in this because they want to put developmental milestones you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. You need to develop the technology and get it out there. They don't want these companies to sit on them. Um, and then there were there are other yeah. issues that, that have to do with improvements, conflict of interest, aggregators. I, I think you were involved maybe during your tenure at, uh, at Stanford in uh, creating the Inventor's Guide to Tech Transfer. It gives inventors a sense of what how they fit into this world. And uh, also another one is Life of a Stanford Invention. I thought it was terrific. I thought they're both really uh, useful, visually oriented uh, documents that were great. We also have another document that has to do with copyright licensing. Oh, and one okay. of the things that we really emphasize is that open source uh, doesn't mean public domain. And right. I think a lot of people confuse that. Joe, uh, looking ahead, what do you see on the horizon for Baidol? Do you see uh, pushback, more pushback, uh, about the same? Where, where do you see it going? Well, you know, I'm old enough now that I've been through the cycle at least once. And so I think we're now coming out of this anti-patent era because I think the economy is kind of forcing this out of it. In fact, I've been amazed. You know, we started the Baidol Coalition, I guess, about four years ago. And I've been astounded how differently we're being viewed by media now than when we first started. We're hearing people actually understanding now that this system is actually driving the economy. It's one of the things that makes us, it actually makes the United States competitive. And I think uh, people are also appreciating the role of intellectual property. Uh, you're seeing Congress now you know, starting to relook at some of the things we've enacted over the past couple of years, thinking they've gone too far, which they have. So I'm actually very hopeful. We're still, we're always going to have critics. That's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having critics. It keeps you sharp. I think they've sort of short, shot their bolt on a lot of the stuff. In fact, one thing is the Biden administration just rejected the latest attempt to misuse Baidol. And, I, you know, we were very relieved about that because you know, this, this is being done. A lot of political pressure was being brought to bear. In fact, right now, Bernie Sanders is holding right. out the new director of NIH, trying to force the Biden administration to misuse Baidol. We've gotten to the point now where I think people are realizing, hey, wait a minute, there, this seems like it's a little over the top. And Bernie so, Sanders, well, I think he wants to eliminate patents and maybe or, or minimize well, them and have competitions uh, instead. It, well, again, it's driven by the same people that Admiral Rickover, God bless him, uh, it's the same philosophy. And it's an anti-patent. The government, what it is, is the government knows best. The government should pick the winners and losers. Um, and if, if you want to have the federal government running, running innovation, it's a great system. But there's no socialist country in the world that's very good at innovation that I know of. Right. So I think you know, I think people are seeing – because, again, we're at the point now 
where we're, we're having rivals. And I think having a rival sharpens your attention. A, a lot of these anti-patent policies came from the 50s and 60s when we didn't really have any economic rivals. Suddenly when we had Japan and Germany eating our lunch, people said, wait a minute, we better better wake up here. And I think we're in that same situation now. So I'm hopeful. Uh, I think, again, we need to keep educating people, as you said. You know, these lessons have to be relearned over and over again. But um, the difference now is we actually have the data. We've run the experiment. We did it their way, and we've done it the Baidol way. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when you get away from the rhetoric and actually look at the facts, that's why we keep prevailing. So, uh, and again, thanks to people like Kathy. The other thing we should mention just real real quickly, Baidol overnight changed the whole system. Universities went from not owning inventions to the next day they owned them. We didn't train any people that night. We relied on the professional societies and people like Kathy's predecessor, Nils Ramers and Kathy, to actually teach best practices, which they've done. They've done that on their own dime. The government didn't do that. And back to your thing about the nine points, that wasn't imposed by the government. The universities right. did it. The universities are the stewards of the public interest, and they've done a fantastic job, and they should be appreciated. They should not be attacked. They should be appreciated. They're not doing this as a money-making effort. The universities are paying for patenting. They're paying for the tech transfer office. That, that's not an indirect cost. They're paying for that. It's a service. And I think they've done remarkably well. There's, there's There are literally hundreds of millions of people alive today because of Baidol that would not be otherwise. And if you're sick, if you have cancer, do you want a research paper or do you want a drug? And it really comes down, that's, it's, it's that blunt. That's the choice. What do you want? Would COVID have been developed if it was left to the devices oh. of government organizations to do? They just don't do that. They don't do it well. There's a history of their not doing it well. And, you know, uh, capitalism can work. Yes. <laughs> capitalism Kathy, does work. Yeah. Sure. Kathy, any final thoughts uh, from your perspective? You know, my final thought is that we're an entrepreneurial country. We're full of entrepreneurs. And Baidol enables entrepreneurs to do startups, get an exclusive license, invest there, and take a big, huge risk. And so, again, I think Baidol is wonderful and has done marvelously for this country. And I think that the country has to recognize this as being really, truly one of the most inspired pieces of legislation. And despite that, it still has to defend itself constantly. Well, it does. But I'll, I'll tell you another hopeful thing is. Yeah. China is now turning on their entrepreneurs. What drove the Chinese economy was they had, they finally realized we're going to take the yoke of communism off you and actually release our entrepreneurs. But entrepreneurs aren't easy to control. So what are they doing right now? They're cracking down on entrepreneurs, which I think is a fatal mistake. Mm-hmm. So our system works. There's nothing in the world like it. And again, I don't mind. You have to keep this is all new to people. I mean, 1980 is a long time ago now. But I think we, you know, we need to keep learning the lessons and um I think I think we're doing that, and I, I'm I'm very hopeful about the future. I think American entrepreneurism is what characterizes this country. We need to cherish it, and it's based on the patent system. Without the patent system, people like Google would have been eaten up by somebody else. Once they showed it could work, another company would have taken it away from them for nothing. And no one's going to do that. Animal Farm doesn't work. Thank you uh, both for your time today. This was a really wonderful, stimulating uh, discussion. And uh, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy it. Thank you for having us. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for IP Understanding, an independent nonprofit. Follow CIPU on LinkedIn at the Center for Intellectual Property. 
content conveyed is for informational purposes only and does not represent the views of CIPU or its affiliates. This episode was produced by Jack Shields for Wild Creek Studios.